Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Some details of the Trump administration's tariff relief package for farmers have been released. It's great news if you grow soybeans. Uh, The problem is you probably don't farm in California. California's growers of every other crop are a bit miffed at the lack of support they're getting in this ongoing tariff war. We have the details. The Oriental fruit fly is back, and that's not good news for Sacramento area farmers and gardeners. We talk about what the state and Sacramento County officials are doing to eradicate this newly found pest in the city of Sacramento. Wine grape growers are in the middle of their harvest season. Smoke taint is near the top of their list of worries. Well, that and labor shortages, of course. We have all that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The Trump administration announced details of actions that the USDA will take to assist farmers in response to the tariff battles going on with foreign nations. Soybean growers are very happy with the numbers that have been released. California's farmers, not so happy. First, an overview of what will be happening from the USDA's Rod Bain. The goal in terms of when the Agriculture Department would offer their short-term trade disruption package to farm producers affected by recent tariff disputes. It's been our stated goal to implement these programs right after Labor Day on September the 4th, and we will achieve that. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue with the announcement days prior to the holiday weekend. The three-pronged package includes the market facilitation program and payment rates for impacted commodities and producers. Under Secretary for Farm Production and Conservation Bill Northey provides the program sign-up timeline. With sign-up to begin the 4th of September, scheduled to end the middle of January. Meanwhile, impacted commodities will be purchased as part of the food purchase and distribution program, with purchased goods distributed through various nutrition assistance programs, such as the Emergency Food Assistance Program. And Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs, Greg Ibaugh, says there is an emphasis on encouraging new vendors to participate in this program and procure commodities because we are tailoring the specifications of the products that we'll be purchasing to line up with those high quality, high value crops and categories within the commodities that were destined for the foreign marketplace. $200 million will be used to develop foreign markets for U.S. ag goods via the Agricultural Trade Promotion Program. Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Ted McKinney says ATP is like existing foreign market development programs, yet with a more streamlined model and increased flexibility. We'll be accepting applications from September 4 when the, up till November 2, and we intend to start distributing those funds maybe sooner, but likely early 2019. Secretary Purdue emphasized the rate of progress in trade disputes would determine if any further announcements related to the payments or programs are warranted. He noted on the same day of the package announcement, the trade agreement reached in principle between the U.S. and Mexico. The agreement specifically addresses agricultural biotechnology to keep up with the 21st century innovations and mutually pledges to reduce trade-distorting policies, increase transparency, and ensure non-discriminatory treatment in the grading of our agricultural products. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, let's tackle the good news first, and that is the United States-Mexico Trade Agreement. By the way, we're still waiting to see if Canada will be involved in this. At press time, they were still on the sidelines. 
While agriculture has generally performed well under NAFTA, important improvements in the new agreement will enable food and agriculture to trade more fairly. One of the key achievements is tariffs on agricultural products traded between the United States and Mexico will remain at zero. Mexico is a key destination for California's agricultural products. Export value is over a billion dollars and includes dairy and dairy products, processed tomatoes and almonds. And booze is safe, too. The United States and Mexico agreed to labeling and certification provisions that will help the countries avoid barriers to trade in wine and distilled spirits. Also, Mexico agreed to continue recognition of bourbon whiskey and Tennessee whiskey as distinctive products of the United States, while the United States agrees to continue recognition of tequila and mezcal as distinctive products of Mexico. And now for the not-so-good news, and you may need a drink for this... The big winner in those tariff payments, soybean producers. Nearly half of the $4.7 billion in Trump tariff payments will go to five Midwestern states that are the largest soybean and hog producers in the country. Groups representing corn, wheat, and produce growers said the payments outlined by Secretary Perdue were inequitable. And that includes a lot of California's specialty crop producers. There will be an allocation of $63 million for the California almond industry. The funds are intended to provide mitigation to account for negative impacts from the exports to China. The Almond Alliance says while this monetary commitment is firm, we're still working closely with the administration on how the funds will be allocated as no additional details have been provided at this time. And dairy farmer income will take a $1.5 billion hit this year if the tariffs remain in place through the end of the year. While U.S. dairy producers appreciate the USDA's plan to purchase dairy products and increase funding to develop foreign markets in its tariff mitigation strategy, they say the USDA's plan to distribute $127 million in direct payments to dairy producers, well, that falls far short of what's needed. The other major story we're following this week, and it's not good news for local farmers, a local infestation of oriental fruit flies. That's an exotic invasive species that attacks over 230 different fruits, vegetables, and plants has been found in the city of Sacramento. To date, 15 flies have been found at a handful of residences near the intersection of Stockton Boulevard and Elder Creek Road, according to a news release from Sacramento County. The majority of the flies are males, but there was one female fly found, and that's leading officials to believe there will be additional breeding. Julie Jensen is the county's agricultural commissioner. She said local at-risk products include grapes, pears, and orchard crops, and there will be new restrictions on those farmers who participate in farmers' markets. An establishment of oriental fruit flies in our area would cause direct economic losses via damaged fruit, also increased pesticide use statewide by not only commercial growers but also residential growers in efforts to lessen the damage. There would be a loss of revenue due to export restrictions on fruit that's both domestically and internationally shipped, and there'd be adverse impacts on native plants through the destruction of their fruit. Yearly economic losses would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, according to the CDFA. If the oriental fruit fly did become established in California, a great number of crops in the Golden State would be threatened. And those crops include apples, apricots, avocados, bell peppers, fig, grape, grapefruit, lemon, lime, melons, nectarines, oranges, pears, peaches, persimmons, plums, pomegranate, mandarins, tomatoes, and even walnuts. 
So what will the strategies be for the CDFA and the county ag office to control and eradicate this pest before it gets out of hand? Coming up a little later on the KSTE Farm Hour, we talk with Sacramento County Ag Commissioner Julie Jensen. The American Farm Bureau Federation welcomed the announcement that brings the U.S., Mexico, and Canada closer to updating NAFTA. Dave Salmonson, Senior Director of Congressional Relations for AFBF, says the agreement keeps the zero-tariff status between the U.S. and Mexico. We're selling over $18 billion a year of ag commodities into the Mexican market, and so we want to keep that going, and we don't want to add any incentives for Mexico to buy elsewhere. That was a development we certainly wanted right from the beginning. We were saying, let's do no harm. Let's keep this ag relationship between the U.S. and Mexico going strong. The framework agreement between the U.S. and Mexico provides several benefits for agriculture, many of which were included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. We have some new language there on sanitary and phytosanitary standards, basically food safety standards, making sure they're science-based. We also have some new language on biotechnology making sure approval processes are timely, including gene editing. And we also have some new language on geographic indications, very important for the dairy and the meat industries. I think those are very good measures that are going to help agriculture. Salmonson says the U.S. still has issues to solve with Canada. For agriculture, we still have the issues on dairy and poultry and supply management. But these things have been negotiated over the last year. Canada is coming back to the negotiations, not the U.S.-Mexico part of it is moving on. So we hope this can get resolved quickly and we can move forward with a complete NAFTA product for Congress to take up next year. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. In the Sacramento Valley, the rice is progressing well. Alfalfa is being cut and baled. Corn was harvested for silage and the sunflower harvest is ongoing. In Tulare County, the cotton and black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Corn and sorghum were harvested for silage and alfalfa was cut and baled. The grape vineyards are being irrigated. Table grape harvest is ongoing. Picking of raisin grapes began. Peaches, nectarines, pears, plums, and figs are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards were being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards continues. Some old orchards are being torn out for replacement with new trees. The pomegranate harvest has begun. Persimmon fruit were showing some color. Valencia orange harvest continues with light volumes. Citrus groves were being skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Pushed out citrus groves were being prepared for planting. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchard irrigation continues. Orchard floors were prepared for harvest. Harvest is underway in almond, pistachio, and walnut groves. Processing tomatoes continue to be harvested here in the Sacramento Valley. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes were still being harvested down in Tulare County. And over in Monterey County, the brassica harvest is ongoing. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture is rated poor to fair. Cattle were provided supplemental feeding to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. A portion of Sacramento and Yolo counties have been placed under quarantine for the oriental fruit fly following the detection of 15 flies in and around the southern part of the city of Sacramento near the Lemon Hill community. 
The quarantine zone something like 123 square miles. It's bordered on the north by El Camino Avenue, on the south by Laguna Boulevard, on the west by the Sacramento River, and on the east by Bradshaw Road. And they're serious about maintaining this quarantine. The Oriental Fruit Fly is known to target over 230 different fruit, vegetable, and plant commodities. Damage occurs when the female fruit fly lays her eggs inside the fruit. The eggs hatch into maggots and tunnel through the flesh of the fruit, which makes it unfit for consumption. We're talking with Julie Jensen. She is the Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner. Julie, let's talk about the impact on commercial agriculture in this quarantine area. Uh, I, I guess we should basically explain why the quarantine area is so large. Well, uh, the way the quarantines are developed is it is approximately a four and a half mile radius around each of the finds where we've actually trapped the fly. And then they look for the nearest landmark, like a road or a river, something that they can use to demark the end of the uh, of the edge of the quarantine. And so the majority of our flies, in fact, uh, 14 of the 15, have been caught in luckily a very small one mile square core. Um, but unfortunately, we did have one that we trapped that was a mile and a half outside of that core area, and that really expanded the quarantine quite a bit because then you go the mile and a half out and then you have to push another four and a half miles outside of that and do a circle around that find. So that's how they determined uh, what the quarantine would be. The oriental fruit fly, as I mentioned, can attack over 230 different crops. What are the crops that are most threatened in the quarantine area now? Well, for us, um, in Sacramento County, Luckily, we have almost no commercial producers. I'm talking about large ag commercial producers within the quarantine area. Unfortunately, the quarantine area does extend over into Yolo County, and it does pull in some of their um, agricultural cropland. Uh, so they do have commercial producers who are affected. Um, also, our, the way the quarantine's drawn right now the southern end of it, it does not get into our grapes and our pears, but that is an issue if it does expand. If we find more flies that are south of where we've currently been finding them, it could push down into our commercial cropland, and that would that would be really difficult. The pears, you know, have been in, they're harvested right now, so that would be very difficult for them. Um where the quarantine is right now is going to primarily affect some of our small certified producers and our small urban farms, and um, especially the things that they're harvesting right now, tomatoes. In order to uh, sell things out of the quarantine area, post material out of the quarantine area, it has to be treated a minimum of four times during a 30-day period. And some of these vegetables, like these tomatoes, they can't hold for 30 days. They're ready to come off now. They will not hold for 30 days. And so, therefore, that pretty much uh, negates the sale of that commodity from anybody that's inside the quarantine area. Their options are they can process that uh, fruits or vegetables. So if they have tomatoes, they could make it into salsa or make it into spaghetti sauce, um, but they can't sell it as fresh tomatoes. Are there any crops that are exempt from this quarantine that you know of? 
Uh, yes, actually only host material. So there are a few things that don't fall under the host material. And, and for us, one of the big ones is our strawberry growers won't be affected because strawberries um, are not well, it's not that they're not a host of this fruit fly. The issue is the strawberry fruit is so short-lived that it's not long enough for the fly to complete its life cycle. So the fruit actually comes on, ripens, and is picked quicker than the fruit fly can develop. For farmers, then, who are harvesting now, you mentioned that one of their options is processing it. Can they sell it within the quarantine zone at all? Uh, it, no, the quarantine doesn't really allow for that because then they don't have control over where it goes because people share it. I mean, it's just you can compost it on your property. It can You can compost it on the same place that you are. You can process it within the quarantine area, but you're not supposed to sell it as fresh because you don't have control over where it goes. Many farmers and homeowners are worried about the processes that will be used to control this pest. They might be thinking medfly or mosquitoes, and maybe they have concerns about aerial spraying. But actually, when it comes to controlling the oriental fruit fly, there are much more gentler methods of controlling this pest, and many of these methods are rather non-intrusive. It is. Actually, you know, if we were going to have to get an infestation of an exotic invasive, this is one of the better ones to get. Because of that very reason, the treatment is much less intrusive than a lot of the other exotic invasive uh, treatment. And it's also a much softer material. Um, they're actually using, uh, it's called GF120, and it's actually a material that it's uh, spinosad, and it's actually approved for organic farming use. So um, it's a much softer material, and that's great as far as, you know, helping to make the public feel more comfortable with the treatment. But also um, it's done with a small, in a small gel that has a, um, it has a, a male attractant, and then it has the, the GF120 in it, and they put it up on either up in a tree or up on a telephone pole so they don't have to go on each person's property and be in their face doing a full foliar treatment over their whole property. And that just makes the whole program a lot less intrusive to the public and, and much more palatable. Um, also, we do have a few properties where we've had multiple fly finds on the property and the properties immediately adjacent to that, those are getting foliar treatment. But again, it's with this, um, it's a gel type spray and it's using the GF120. So it's the spinosad. So it's a much, much softer material. So, so yeah, if we had to have one, this is the better one to have. Is there confiscation of produce involved in this? So far to date, we haven't done that. Um, that is, uh, one of the possibilities is fruit stripping, and we haven't had to do that yet, but I'm not going to say that that's out of the realm of possibility. So the reason for these uh, attractants is to attract the male fruit flies. They perish after consuming it. And uh, actually, that approach has worked uh, over the past several decades for controlling this pest in California, hasn't it? Yes, actually, this is one of the invasives that uh, California has a pretty good record on being able to eradicate small infestations. They've been very successful. And again, the bottom line for all this is if you're growing produce, 
do not move it out of the quarantine area, consume it or get rid of it. And uh, don't don't bring the pests in if you're traveling, especially traveling overseas where oriental fruit flies or even to Hawaii where oriental fruit flies are established. Don't uh, pick up any hitchhikers by bringing home uh, some uh, fruit or vegetables. Right. Bringing home or don't ask people to mail stuff to you too. also. All right. Julie Jensen is the Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner. Julie, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime. What will be the impact to farmers and consumers who shop the area's vast supply of farmers markets? Jay Van Ryan is a spokesman with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. He explains the precautions that will be taken. Well, the basics on the oriental fruit fly quarantine, especially for growers who may be selling at farmer's markets or other outdoor sites in in the Sacramento area. Uh, The main thing that our uh, consumers are going to see is that the crops are still for sale at these markets, but they might be offered for sale in bins that have, say, a clear plastic lid or they may have a mesh or plastic cover over them, that sort of thing. Basically, what we're doing is providing uh, an extra safeguard so that fruit flies that may be in the area uh, don't have an easy target when they come into contact with a large amount of fruit, like at a fruit, like at a farmer's market. So we're trying to make it a little more difficult for those flies to find a place to either feed or breed. For the farmers who may reside within the quarantine area, what restrictions are placed on them before they can sell produce at a farmer's market? For our most of the farmers who supply our local farmer's markets have their growing grounds outside of the quarantine area, but there are some that will be inside. And for those folks, they're going to have to go through a series of treatment uh, of any of the crops that are hosts for this fly before those can be moved or sold. And that's a same condition that we apply, you know, every time we have a fruit fly infestation, we get most of our infestations are down in the Los Angeles basin for obvious reasons. That's where all of our uh, travelers are. That's where all of our you know, commerce is moving the most and that sort of thing. But up here, we get them very seldom. So this is an unusual situation for, for growers up here. But there are folks in other parts of the state who are quite used to it. Is that process about a 30 day process of what is it four sprays? Yeah, that's typically the way it works. And uh, for most of these growers and for most of these crops, there's a uh, uh, we the, the, they have the uh, ability to use the same product that we use to eradicate this pest, which is a, an organic approved uh, treatment called uh, Naturalite or Spinosad is the active ingredient. Basically, it's a, a derivative from uh, soil, believe it or not. It's a bacteria that's derived from soil that that interacts with these flies' nervous systems and eradicates them that way. The other option for farmers in the quarantine zone would be to take their produce and process that and bring the finished product to the farmers' markets. Yeah, we do have a lot of products that are uh, that are offered uh, like that at our farmers' markets. I, uh, for the folks who've been to one of any of our larger farmers' markets or around Sacramento, um, it, it's not the... Uh, just the bins of, of, of fruit and so forth at these markets, they're actually quite well developed now they're to the point where we've got lots of processed uh, items that are, you know, kind of uh, someone's home recipe for Fig Newton bars or someone's home recipe for this or that using the fruit as the basis for it. So a lot of those products are, are for sale, you know, just every week or every weekend at these farmers markets and those will continue to be available. One concern I hear from farmers outside the area who are bringing their produce into the quarantine area 
Can they take that produce home, the unsold produce? Yeah, there are requirements for transporting the fruit that are going to apply for farmers, whether they're inside or outside the the area, whether they're growing grounds or inside or outside the quarantine zone. If they're bringing it in to sell at the farmer's market, they're going to have to transport it undercover. Uh, the minimal cover would be, at, you know, tarping and that sort of thing that we use for, for truckers who transport fruits and vegetables all the time, but also uh, folks who may, may be using their own trailers that are enclosed or they may have some other means of, of uh, covering or, or enclosing the crops. And we'll have inspectors at the market that are ensuring that that's happening, both incoming and outgoing. You had mentioned uh, before we started this interview that uh, you've gone now through a baiting cycle looking for the uh, oriental fruit fly and haven't found any. So how long is a baiting cycle and how many cycles do you have to go through before a quarantine is lifted? Well, it takes uh, once we found basically once we detected these flies, we've got, gone out and set traps uh, by the dozens, uh, actually several hundred throughout the area. Uh, to check for these flies, and, and we've gone through basically a week without uh, finding anything new, uh, and that's that's a good sign. It's by no means the end of the uh, affair. The uh, the fact that we have I think I think we have 15 flies now that we've detected, and we have detected both males and females. So we have evidence that there may be breeding going on that they weren't just all brought in at once from some outside source. So that makes uh, an infestation a little harder to eradicate. But the the uh, the silver lining is that we have a very effective and long-proven system of eradicating these infestations. Is there a way to put a timeline on the total length of the quarantine? No, I think minimally we're looking at several months here just because, and it's all based on the life cycle of the fly, uh, and that's uh, largely temperature-driven. So as we're going into the cooler months, that'll slow things down a little bit for the fly. It takes basically takes the fly longer to reproduce and develop into an, into the next generation of adult. The, mi- the minimum requirement really is three generations, three life cycles without finding any flies before we can uh, call it done. Jay Van Ryn, spokesperson with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. No problem. Take care. With harvest underway in California's prime wine grape growing areas, there is still a constant challenge facing all grape growers in California, and that's a shortage of labor, according to the Western Farm Press. Many growers are responding to the shortage by hiring more full-time workers throughout the year rather than trying to rely on seasonal help, that according to the Sonoma County wine grape growers. One answer is an increasing number of growers are using the H-2A Agricultural Work Visa Program to build a reliable work workforce, but many are challenged by the program's strict housing requirements. And as mechanization becomes more efficient, some wineries and growers are working together to mechanically harvest their grapes this season. And it's well underway, the harvest. In Sonoma County, the season's first wine grapes came off the vines on August 15th. Napa County's harvest started August 14th. And throughout northern and central California, vineyards are being irrigated in preparation for harvest. That according to the National Agricultural Statistics Service. Work on agricultural labor is on lawmakers' agenda after the Labor Day holiday. The ag- 
Ag and Legal Workforce Act of 2018, supported by the American Farm Bureau Federation, would replace the H-2A program with a new H-2C program, says AFBF's Public Policy Managing Director Paul Schlegel. The advantages of the new program are it's open to all of agriculture. It is less bureaucratic for farmers. It reduces unnecessary recruitment obligation, moves enforcement to USDA, takes it out of Department of Labor. The other major aspect of the bill is it would mandate the E-Verify system nationwide. Lawmakers have just 19 in-session days to consider the bill before another break ahead of the November elections. The bill has not yet been scheduled for a floor vote, but AFBF is hopeful for a vote in September. There are things we would like to see improved if we can do it, but if you look at the policy our delegates have enunciated on what they want in a guest worker program, the bill comes very, very close to that. We've been trying to get a meaningful change in guest worker programs for over two decades now, and we want to make sure with this opportunity we don't lose it and we can get a bill passed by the House. Schlegel says the bill provides much-needed relief for farmers and ranchers. You have a real crisis or a demand for labor within the agricultural sector. This also gets us a program for which everyone is eligible, and it relieves the anxiety of farmers have of making sure that their workers are legal. Michael Clements, Washington. North Coast wineries may have gotten a slight break due to the Mendocino complex of wildfires. Lake County wineries report that the fire shifted to about 15 to 30 miles north of that county's vineyards, that according to the Western Farm Press. Wildfire-weary vintners in California's Lake County are reassuring their customers that the latest round of flames to sweep through the area have so far steered clear of the vineyards. But that raises another concern among wine producers throughout California, and that's the possible effects of smoke plumes on grapes. Unlike other agricultural products, the skins of grapes are permeable, so free volatile phenols created by burning wood become part of the grape itself. This also has worried grape growers in the Sierra foothills. Drift smoke from the Ferguson fire has some Tuolumne County vintners and agriculturists concerned about the commercial viability of the early fall grape harvest. Ron Harms is owner of Yosemite Cellars in Groveland, and he told the Union Democrat newspaper that the Ferguson fire smoke drew parallels to the 2013 Rim Fire, which created an almost entirely smoke-tainted harvest that year. He told the paper it isn't something you can just wash off. The effect on fruit flavors is more pronounced as the fruit gets riper. We've all seen the news stories about and perhaps been directly affected by those monster wildfires dealing destruction and death during this very bad fire season. Wildfire season is a misnomer. It's truly a wildfire year. People in the West are choking on smoke and families are fleeing from these mega blazes. We have over 517 homes that were lost. So many people are displaced. The new normal is a summer of smoke, a huge health risk. Fire knows no boundary. It just goes. This fire is going in many, many different directions and is very hard to predict. And after a visit last week to fire-ravaged California, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, whose department also includes the Forest Service, says there's an urgent need not to just beef up suppression efforts, but also to dramatically increase our preventative forest treatments. Purdue, in a Capitol Hill press briefing a few days ago, unveiling a new plan on how to do that, a plan that would involve states and environmental groups collaborating more closely, sharing resources much more than in the past. He said the federal government doesn't have enough resources to, for example, remove huge amounts of dead and dying trees, which help fuel the wildfires. But 
working with the states will provide us a strategic plan of where we need to prioritize them again first. These are going to be joint decisions. This is not federal superiority. This is a recognition of shared stewardship, working with states and local communities, local environmentalists and others to make a plan to make it all uh, better with our healthy forest. And Interim Forest Service Chief Jackie Christensen told reporters, Business as usual at the USDA Forest Service will no longer work for us anymore. At the press conference with Purdue, several senators from western states, also representatives from environmental groups and forestry experts and such, their reaction to the plan? The vision you shared here today is a breath of fresh air in the midst of a lot of smoky air. Our best thing we can do is work together. Refreshingly, this effort is about responsible land management and not partisan politics. I like what I'm hearing. We got a lot of heavy lifting to do, folks. But right now, there's not much money for that heavy lifting. The wildfire season has been so severe that, once again, the Forest Service is already having to move money from other activities such as fire prevention and forest maintenance to pay for fire suppression. Secretary Purdue explained it for reporters. The fire funding fix that Congress gave us this last spring only starts October 1st of next year in 2020. Fiscal year 2020 actually starts October 1st, calendar year 2019. So the Forest Service will continue the borrowing from other Forest Service accounts to pay for firefighting. And appealing to Congress again to backfill some of those funds that we borrowed in the uh, FY19 budget. And Oregon Senator Ron Wyden told reporters and Purdue, We're committed to make sure that they have the tools they need. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Contracted production for California's processing tomatoes is forecasted at 11.8 million tons. That's averaging 50 tons per acre. The current forecasted production is 13.4% above the 2017 crop and a little less than 1% below the May forecast. The projected harvest acreage of tomatoes grown under contract is 234,000 acres. That's an increase of 5.9% compared to 2017. The weather was very conducive to more tomatoes. High summer temperatures resulted in the crop developing sooner than planned in some areas of the state. Harvest began in early July with a slightly slower start than in 2017, but caught up by the third week. Yields were reported to be good and above the contracted levels. With a larger crop, though, sugars are expected to be lower compared to last season. Water availability has not been an issue, and there were minimal concerns about disease and pest pressure. Despite planting fewer acres, California's strawberry grower should produce nearly as much fruit as a year ago. A new estimate from the U.S. Department of Agriculture says California strawberry production will be down 1% this year. California accounts for more than 90% of the nation's strawberry harvest. Florida is number two. The state's leading strawberry-growing counties include Monterey, Ventura, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, and Santa Cruz counties. Maybe you have plans to go outside to enjoy nature this summer. While you're enjoying your wild place, take care of it. And one of the ways you can do that, the most simple way to do that, is to keep an eye out what the changes are, what's happening in those places. That was the U.S. Forest Service's Mike Ilmini, who talked about a new citizen science program. Wild Spotter is a program to help build that capacity to have your average person out there across the landscape. And visitors of these national forests come help us find and map invasive species in America's wild places. There's a free app that makes it easy for anybody to report 
unusual things they see in nature. There's also a website that has more information. The website address is www.wildspotter.org. In other words, like we say,、uh, if you see something, say something. You heard this in the national security arena. People are already looking around and keeping an eye out for things. If they can tune them in on this, it really makes a difference. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington D.C. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was adopted by California back in 2014, but that's going to change more than groundwater alone. The requirement to end overdraft will also transform land use, and that's a massive side effect yet to be widely recognized. Matt Weiser is a reporter for Water Deeply, and one of the side effects of the implementation of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act may be the fallowing of hundreds of thousands of acres of prime California farmland, according to Weiser. It's an aspect of the law that hasn't been covered very much, but it could be just as significant as the effects on groundwater. It's been estimated that because there's a need to reduce use of groundwater, it, it could cause a great deal of fallowing of farmland, perhaps as much as 600,000 acres of farmland in the San Joaquin Valley alone could be fallowed when the law is. Fully implemented. That really isn't in the best interests of the local governments, is it? They're going to lose some income. Right. They collect property taxes、uh, from farmland. If it sits fallow, their property tax collections will cease or become reduced. So some local government governments are starting to look at this and say, "Well, we need to prepare for this and figure out what to do with fallowed farmland once it happens." And one of the local governments that's kind of leading the way on this is Kern County in the far southern end of the San Joaquin Valley. They happen to be. Preparing a new general plan, which is the document that guides all the、uh, land use in the county, and for the first time, they're they're including a a water element. It's called in the general plan that will examine、um, water use in the county and how it should be used. They're also looking at strategic places to reuse fallowed farmland. For instance. One of the big concerns is groundwater recharge. You know, in addition to using less groundwater, you actually have to figure out how to build it back up. So some areas are better for recharge than others, and if those are areas that end up being fallowed, you want to protect them for recharge purposes and maybe not allow heavy development in those places. Although the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was adopted in 2014, it, it's not expected to be fully implemented until 2040. And that slow rollout will allow county land use planners more time to make some very expensive decisions when it comes to existing farms versus new housing developments. Recent awareness of improved rural infrastructure and facilities has focused on utilities like broadband and their capabilities in the realm of improved standard of living and economic development in rural America. It may have some of us, though, taking our electric systems for granted. But as the administrator for USDA's Rural Utilities Service, Ken Johnson reminds us, if we go back 80 years ago, most of rural America had no electricity, and President Roosevelt and Congress decided that it was time something be done to help bring electricity to rural America. Thus, the REA was created. REA meaning the Rural Electrification Authority, the precursor of the Rural Utilities Service. RUS provides loans to rural communities and cooperatives to develop electric systems, which in turn provides the power for rural industries and retail. And for agriculture producers, without electricity, we wouldn't be able to produce and feed the world as we do today. 
and in terms of turning the power on to start and run the economic engines in rural areas nationwide, the importance of rural electric cooperatives and power providers is not lost on our U.S. Administrator Johnson. Many of the communities that rural electric cooperatives serve cover about 90 percent of the counties who are in poverty level across the United States. So the real need for readily available funding to support rural electrification is very important. Which leads to the latest round of rural electric loan offerings announced recently by USDA. There are projects in 14 different states and many of those loans are for infrastructure. 20 total infrastructure projects equaling over $345 million in investment. And while this financing program has a distinguished past, several of the projects covered under the Electric Infrastructure Loan Program and these newly awarded loans involve the expanding future of smart grid technology. Smart grid is a way to bring greater efficiencies into the electric system so that we have a much better idea of how the electric grid is performing during high energy use periods of time or during storms. We can more readily dispatch people to restore electricity in the event there'd be a power outage. Johnson says in addition, utilities via smart grid technology can modernize meter reading capabilities, improve data collection needed for more efficient operation of an electric power system, and provide cost savings for customers. In order to continue the economic drive in rural America to provide the opportunities so that we have parity with many of the other locations across America in the more urban areas, it's just really important that we continue to focus on infrastructure and that we do what we can to support electricity initiatives. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.